daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Both leaders from China and France call for strengthened exchanges and a deeper cooperation to fortify the 60-year diplomatic ties. China and the U.S. have agreed to launch joint efforts on drug control, AI applications, and people-to-people exchanges in recent Wang Yi and Sullivan talks. And Arab nations have strongly criticized the Western decision to suspend funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called on China and France to strengthen exchanges and make the relationship stronger and more dynamic. The call came as President Xi exchanged congratulatory messages with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron commemorating the 60th anniversary of diplomatic ties between the two nations. Both leaders underscore the significance of global peace and security. President Macron called on positive vitality in taking further steps in cooperation, and President Xi highlighted the value of dialogue and international diplomacy over the last 60 years. To provide insights into the evolution of China-France relations during this period, let's turn to Dr. Cui Hongjian, a professor at the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Cui. Hi. Professor, can you elaborate on the historical significance of the establishment of China-French diplomatic relations 60 years ago, and what makes this relationship different or special compared to other Western or European countries? I think it's uh, important and also significant for China-France relations, not only because of its uh, history. As we know, uh, France is uh, one of the uh, early uh, biggest Western countries to have the diplomatic ties with China at the earliest time. Mm. And also, I think that uh, for the past uh, 60 years, we can find out uh, no matter what happened for the global and uh, regional environment, both China and France, uh, they are insisted, uh, I mean, continued and also consistent uh, relations to keep uh, stability for these uh, relations and also has a very high-level strategical uh, significance because both of China, both China and France, they are the member of the uh, Security Council in UN and they shared some more consensus on the uh, global and the regional issues. And even on some other areas like uh, uh, trade and economy and the people-to-people exchange, both the countries achieved a lot. So always, the China-France relations uh, has been playing a leading role in these uh, relations between China and the Western countries. Now, speaking of achievements between the two, from the first comprehensive partnership to the present, uh, could you discuss the key milestones in the evolution of China-France relations, highlighting the areas of cooperation and mutual benefit over the past six decades? Yes, not only uh, France is a, a country has the uh, diplomatic ties with China at the earliest time, and also 
France is one a uh, Western European, uh, Western countries to have this uh, comprehensive strategic partnership with China, and also China and uh, France they launched a uh, uh, you know trade strategic and people to people exchange, uh, you know uh, in the earlier time uh, within the Western countries, and uh, they do have uh, more cooperation and also. Uh, uh, you know, uh, coordination on global and uh, regional issues, especially on how to insist uh, multilateralism and uh, how to deal with a global issue like uh, climate change. And on all of these uh, global governance issues, uh, both China and France, they play a leading role uh, to help with some um, relations, not only on the bilateral level and also on regional and the global level. So I think it shows uh, so many highlights uh, in the history uh, to help the more health and also uh, stable relations between two countries. During the talk, President Macron called for positive vitality in furthering cooperation. In your opinion, what specific areas of collaboration hold the greatest potential for strengthening ties between China and France in the coming years? As we know, uh, in the past, uh, both China and France, they achieved a lot in some uh, traditional cooperation in aviation, in high-speed railway, and also in nuclear energy. I think that now, besides this uh, traditional cooperation, uh, both China and France, they are also trying to explore some new areas for cooperation, including, for example, the uh, uh, biotechnology and also uh, green economy and the digital economy and also uh, some uh, uh, finance and the service uh, trade. So I think both two countries, they are trying to take the opportunity of the uh, uh, upgradation, upgradation of the uh, uh, industry and to uh, try to have some more potential cooperation in the future. Professor, we know President Emmanuel Macron has been highlighting the strategic autonomy of the European Union. What's your take on France's pursuit of strategic autonomy in the development of China-France relations? And how does it contribute to France's interactions with other major global players and its ability to navigate global challenges independently today? As we know, to build up and also insist a kind of uh, strategic autonomy uh, has become the logo uh, for uh, French government and especially President uh, Macron. As we understand that once there are some more uh, independent uh, policies and also independent positions from uh, uh, France on regional and global issue, certainly it will give some more uh, structural and also more uh, strong basis for this cooperation between China and France. Also, you know, both China and France, uh, they are uh, they are two countries with a long uh, long time traditions uh, with uh, independent uh, policies. So I think uh, to have some more strategic autonomy, not only for France and also for European countries, certainly it will give some more dynamic for this cooperation between China and uh, France. Uh, of course, I think once there are some more uh, independent France and uh, Europe in the world, it will be very helpful uh, for the world to stop any kind of uh, negative uh, uh, tendency 
to go back to the so-called uh, uh, new, new Cold War. And also, it will give some more uh, positive uh, messages for this world to stop any kind of uh, uh, negative trend to have so-called block confrontations. Mm-hmm. Then from a broader perspective, considering France's leadership in the EU's policy towards China, in what ways do China-France relations serve as a ballast for China-EU relations? How has this leadership influenced the broader dynamics of China-EU cooperation? Always, because uh, France is one of the leading uh, member states within the European Union. And also, uh, the France is one of the founders for the European integration. So certainly, once China and France, they have some more cooperation in bilateral relations, they will give some more positive, uh, I mean, messages and the positive environment for the China-Europe relations. As we know, recent years, uh, European Union tried to have a so-called a single voice towards China. So I think uh, on this regard, France could play a more active role to help the European countries and also the European Union to build up a more constructive uh, uh, perception about China and then try to uh, find out the uh, more national, uh, more rational and also more reasonable uh, policy towards China. So I think this year, certainly, both China and France, they will launch a lot of activities and events to help uh, uh, more mutual understanding between China and France and also between China and Europe. On this basis, I think that uh, it will give some more positive environment for the relations between China and uh, all of the European countries. Then given the evolving global geopolitical landscape, how do you see the future trajectory of China-France relations and what challenges and opportunities do you anticipate in the years ahead? I think in the current environment, especially, we are talking about more and more uh, geopolitical tensions mm-hmm. and even some more negative influence from uh, geopolitical on geoeconomical cooperation. So I think once China and France, they try to, uh, you know, uh, stabilize their relations and also they insist the right direction for further cooperation Certainly, I think it will give some more positive uh, environment and also more certainties for these relations uh, among major players. And also, at the same time, I think once both both China and France, they insist uh, the win-win cooperation and they try to find out more solutions for uh, geopolitical tensions uh, uh, jointly. So I think certainly it will give some more uh, dynamic for any kind of uh, peace solution and also uh, for the recovery of the uh, world economy. So I think now it's time for both China and France uh, to make clear what uh, uh, mutual uh, uh, understanding and the mutual confidence and then to find out some more common issues uh, with the common grounds. So I think it will give some more, I mean, example or model for the relations uh, between other major players in the world.
Thank you very much, Dr. Cui, for insightful opinion. That's Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. Welcome back to Road Today. China and the U.S. have agreed to launch joint efforts on drug control, AI applications, and people-to-people exchanges. During discussions in Bangkok, Thailand, senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan addressed the implementation of the consensus reached during the San Francisco meeting between the two heads of state last November, while also emphasized the proper handling of important and sensitive issues in China-U.S. relations, the Taiwan question in particular. He urged the U.S. to stick to the One China principle and take concrete actions to support China's peaceful reunification. To gain further insights into this recent engagement between China and the U.S., I interviewed Professor Zhu Feng, the Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University. To kick off the discussion, I inquired about his key observations on the collaborative initiatives agreed upon in the recent meeting, especially in the realms of anti-drug cooperation and artificial intelligence. I think uh, that kind of uh, consensus on cooperation of uh, the anti fentanyl and uh, uh, launching of the AI talk is a very positive outcome of the summer meeting in San Francisco. So then Foreign Minister Wang Yi and uh, Mr. Sullivan also just uh, reiterated some sort of a very big significance by both counterparts to just uh, signify, you know, the, the real process to get the uh, U.S.-China dialogue over anti-drug, you know, cooperation and AI, you know, collaboration uh, into the uh, very detailed actions. So I see, yes, the recent, you know, the high-level meeting is a very uh, enlightening, you know, the extension of the uh, summit, you know, meeting, getting back to the uh, last November. You know, all some sort of such a two fields of the, uh, cooperation is not just a very tactical. It also could have become a, a very productive, you know, the dragging force to get a U.S. corporate, U.S.-China cooperation into the deeper level. Anti-anti-drag, you know, cooperation also will involve both governmental, you know, the branches, and it also could just get some sort of such a governmental uh, units just uh, reforming some sort of a very close and informative, you know, the contacts. And the AI issue is actually is more, you know, how I say uh, impending and is more significant because the world economy is just a step into the AI phase of industrialization. So it's a new we say a very, very uh, remarkable signal of the uh, new industrial, you know, the stage for the, all the economies in the world. But the problem is how the AI technology could be safely and securely just the used in all, you know, digitalized economy. It's a still, an, we say, answer the question. So then if the US, China is the number one, number two biggest economy, just the state apart, over how to make the AI, you know, implications in some sort of a safer uh, and a secure manner, then we will see it probably be very disastrous because AI technology 
indeed is a double-edged sword. It could just uh, say contributing to the economic growth, but on the other hand, it could just uh, cause some sort of a new security uh, offense. So then, from these points, I really hope that both countries could take some sort of their upcoming you know, negotiation of anti-drug and AI-centered cooperation more seriously and just setting a very sunshining you know, example for the world community how such a things could be well approached by two leading powers in the world. But Professor, the two sides agreed to further discuss the boundary between national security and economic activities. Because when we're talking about cooperation on artificial intelligence, we've also seen a lot of suppression from the U.S. side on China, especially in the tech sector. So in your view, how challenging is it to find a common ground on this issue and what implications could it have for both countries? Yeah, I think the common ground is... Of course, very clearly identical. You know, the reason is very, very important. AI now is not just some sort of new technology. AI just becomes some sort of engineer to get the world economy into the new high of industrialization. China, U.S. has no way to, but to you know, just has a uh, embrace some sort of AI era, but. The controversy is this, as just as you mentioned, what's the boundary? Both AI economies and economic endorsement could just uh, have say being proved to be not just uh, how say individual, also could just uh, some sort of representation of the world interests. On the other hand, as the two leading economies, US and China are very highly required to set the you know example to clarify, you know, some sort of safer, you know, boundary for the AI, you know, the employment and the implications. On the other hand, if the AI also will just create or bring about some sort of a new uncertainty over the national security, both sides should just very, very clearly and also mutually just demarcate the boundary where you know some sort of unsafety could be prevented at the meantime then some sort of uh, secure and a safer ai uh, embracement could be continuing so that's why i consider ai you know cooperation and dialogue for beijing and washington is a very critical step for both sides not just uh, how say deepen their interdependence economically but also could add to the political confidence and mutual understanding to children. If some sort of a, such a positive process just proceeding very productively, then we will see it also could just uh, how say increase the confidence and the cultivating you know the mutual understanding. You know, could uh, just uh, inevitably just uh, reduce the some sort of uh, suspicion and even just the hostility from either side. So significance is very clear-cut. The Taiwan question was another significant focus during their discussions, with Wang stating it is China's internal affair. How do you assess the repeated emphasis on the Taiwan question in China's communication with the United States? And looking ahead, what strategic moves or considerations should China be aware of 
Considering the significance of the Taiwan matter and potential actions the U.S. might take in the upcoming period, as you mentioned during the general election in the United States. Yeah, I think、uh, Foreign Minister Wang you made it clear. Taiwan issue by nature is China's domestic affairs. U.S. couldn't just overplay the Taiwan issue and just trying to exploiting. Some sort of American strategic, you know, the benefits to demonize the China, to just keep the China at the core, because there's no way China could make a recession at all. So from this point, I think reiteration of the Taiwan issue by nature as the China's domestic affairs is not just how say with a repetition of the Chinese traditional policy. Assumption of the Taiwan issue. Most importantly, it is also a timely warning to the American counterpart: don't intervene in Taiwan affairs. Particularly, as you mentioned, this year is is Americans' domestic general election year. So all different the political figures and different you know the candidates probably just trying to recapitalize on the China factor. So they probably will. Still, just uh, uh, play up the Taiwan tension to benefit themselves as a political capital. So Beijing truly now is highly concerned with what kind of the Taiwan-related policy rhetoric Americans、uh, general election year will just make a great use of, and also overplay. If that seems well, truly just I say on horizon. Then it will be unbelievably harmful to the confidence building between Beijing and Washington. So, therefore, we also see the Foreign Minister Wang Yi's warning is not just timely, but also is very, very serious. Then we will see yes, President Biden also showing some sort of some、uh, new policy signal on how to just address the Taiwan issue. He mentioned, yeah, U.S. is not supportive of Taiwan's independence. Then, following、uh, Secretary of State Blinken also mentioned the U.S. well, just has adhering to the One China policy. But the problem is, as I mentioned, there is a huge controversy between Americans' policy rhetoric and the real political, you know, some sort of such a, a motivation to play up the Taiwan issue. This time, I also see the Mr.、Uh, Sullivan's response over the China's concern is really、uh, not bad. He also mentioned, yeah, U.S.、Uh, want to see the stability in the Taiwan Strait, and the U.S. will not just、uh, how say hijack the China's policy of the Taiwan as a, some sort of a main boss of the uh, uh, China's threat. You know, the exaggeration. But the problem is, where will see just the、uh, Almost、uh, two weeks ago, Taiwan just、uh, finished off the you know the leadership election,、uh, becoming you know the new leadership of、uh, Taiwan's ruling party. Mr. Lai Qingdao is very notorious for his some sort of、uh, Taiwan's bonding. So that's some sort of outcome of Taiwan's just finished election is a very timely you know the warning to the. Beijing and Washington, so both sides I totally、uh, expect could just move very gently and constructively on Taiwan issue. But you also mentioned it's very interesting points. For example, 
So what's the American's policy gesture after Leichinger was elected? Then we will see some sort of American's uh, political and strategic prudence now is a very clear cut. If the U.S. is very badly and disastrously, just to make the kind of one China policy just more uh, vigorous, then we will see the China's attitude to safeguard the China's national integrity will never, never back down. So mm-hmm. then if the tension over the Taiwan Strait is truly just, uh, how to say, just running high, then we will see it will be very bad for President Biden's you know, re-election prospect. Now the U.S. is facing two wars. One is the Korean War. Second is uh, Israeli and Palestine, you know, the, the, the conflict, military conflict. So if the U.S. just very stupidly just trying to trigger one more war, to be honest, as an American expert, U.S. expert, there's totally no, no hope for President Biden will win the re-election campaign. Mm. So from this point, I really hope just to finish the you know, high-level talk could be some sort of a new, you know, the positive connection between Beijing and Washington to some sort of a change the geopolitical reality in the East Asia as well as in the world. Both sides are obliged to get the world safer rather than just making a more lousy end conflict. That was Professor Zhu Feng, the Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University. You're listening to Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. This is Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has lavished his praise on Texas Governor Greg Abbott in the state's escalating feud over immigration with the U.S. federal government. Texas has restricted the U.S. border patrol after U.S. Supreme Court cleared the way for federal agents to cut or remove razor wire installed at the border by Texas officials to stop migrants from entering the U.S illegally. Over the weekend, in a speech focused on border security, Trump said Texas should be given full support in its measures to deter migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. Responding to the decision by U.S. Supreme Court earlier, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said the larger battle is not over and will continue in the name of self-defense. So for more on the news, joining us in the studio is my colleague Leo Quinn, who was also our former correspondent in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us, Leo Quinn. Thanks for having me, Anna. Let's kick things off by diving into the standoff between Texas and the U.S. federal government over the immigration issue. What events led to this tension? and How did they end up with razor wire and legal battles along the border? Mm, right. So uh, Texas is a U.S. southern state and is one of the states that perhaps receives the largest amount of uh, migrants every year. Uh, Greg Abbott is known for his conservative policy. He's a Republican 
governor three term in Texas. Uh, basically, in 2021, uh, because um, of the large influx of migrants uh, from the border uh, with uh, Mexico, Texas state government said Washington has failed to control the border and Texas will come to the rescue and take very aggressive steps to deter uh, illegal migrants. Um, and the razor wire was one of the policies taken by Greg Abbott at the time. Uh, well, the, the U.S.-Mexico border is around 2,000 mile long, uh, and the razor wire dispute relates only to a small portion of that. So Texas local officials, including Texas state troopers, um, have established uh, uh, such a razor wire. And before it caught public attention, U.S. Border Patrol, which are federal agents have at times, cut the wire to make arrests or sometimes rescue from uh, migrants from drowning. Well, actually, the razor wire came into public attention in the July of 2023 after you know an email from a state trooper in Texas. The trooper uh, reported that his colleagues have found a pregnant 90-year-old caught in the wire um, in the river having a miscarriage. He also reported a few other cases. Uh, so in the case at the U.S. Supreme Court, U.S. Justice Department uh, said that, uh, argued the barrier impedes the federal government uh, to patrol the border, including coming to the aid of uh, migrants who need medical support. Uh, eventually, the Supreme Court ruled five to four in favor of federal agents cutting the wire. But again, you know, as you, you, you said earlier in the news, where not seeing uh, Texas refusing to budge. Please help us understand who is in charge when it comes to the U.S. immigration policy. And more importantly, can a state governor mm. like uh, Greg Abbott in Texas really go against a decision made by the highest court in the land? Right. So uh, the U.S. Constitution gives the federal government uh, the power to regulate naturalization. Uh, so the U.S. Supreme Court has long interpreted that as the federal government has the power to regulate immigration and border security. Uh, but the, the Constitution did not set the boundary of, uh, you know, the federal involvement and the extent of it. So the issue is almost entirely up to U.S. Congress. And over the years, Congress has passed a number of regulations and statutes, uh, give federal government really a lot of power on this issue. Um, but then the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court earlier on the Texas uh, razor wire case does not stop uh, Greg Abbott from doing anything. So the, the, the decision mainly just said that the federal government cannot be sanctioned by courts if it takes steps to remove those obstacles. So technically, uh, Greg Abbott is not ignoring the Supreme Court's decision. Some say Texas seemed to be flexing its muscle mm -hmm. in this immigration showdown. But how much sway does mm. Texas, the Lone Star State, have on the national stage? Indeed. And could its actions set a precedent for other states? Mm, that's, that's a good starting point uh, about, you know, the implication of this case. Uh, but over the years, Texas have been ranking the second in terms of GDP among U.S. states. You know, its economy, population, and the sheer size of its geography means that the state's position has a great influence among U.S. states. Uh, traditionally, Texas 
has been a red state, and its decision usually has wide support among red states. In this immigration standoff, we've seen nearly all of uh, Republican governors around the country are supporting Greg Abbott. These governors have released a statement on the Republican Governors Association website, which criticized uh, the Biden administration and said the state of Texas has the constitutional right to defend itself. Well, what's more important is the legal implication of this case because um, one of the things that uh, it brings to the public debate is how much uh, federal government can intervene into immigration issues and also can override federal authorities. Another thing uh, in terms of law is that uh, this case shows that the U.S. Supreme Court, the current nine uh, justices, does not do not have broad support among the American public. Uh, just take a look at you know the the, the attitude or the, how 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 big uh, how the decision has been received in Texas. So it says a lot about the you know the eroding public uh, confidence in the current court. Now speaking of support. For Abbott, how do you look at Donald Trump's support behind Abbott in this broader dispute? Because、uh, let's connect these dots、mm-hmm. to the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Is there a political strategy at、mm-hmm. play? Right. So,、uh, talking about the election in general, U.S. voters are preoccupied.、Uh, You know, with domestic issues, when they choose their president,、uh, economy and immigration are among the top issues of their concern.、Uh, just look no further and just add the two primaries that already happened: one in Iowa, the other one in New Hampshire.、Uh, U.S. media have constantly、uh, ranked immigration as a top issue on voters' mind. Well, as as you said,、um, Donald Trump has quickly seized、uh, this opportunity and jumped into the support of、uh, Greg Abbott.、Um, border security was Donald Trump's centerpiece,、uh, you know, policy、um, during his successful 2016 campaign.、Uh, we will never, you know, forget、uh, the loss of terms that he said about border security. For example, he will establish, he will build a wall, you know, near the U.S.-Mexican border.、Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, this year he was. Was going further than he did eight years ago.、Uh, in one of the cases, accused、uh, mi- migrants are "quote unquote" poisoning the blood of America.、Um, well, I don't need to re- remind more of our listeners of the many humiliating and language he has used on migrants. You know, when he was in office, so of course he is doing、uh, this to attract the broadest base of voters during this election. Another reason,、uh, which is also very important, why you know he jumped so quickly to to this Texas、uh, case is because he wants to make his opponent Joe Biden looks bad.、Uh, as earlier, he already called you know this is. Biden's border crisis.、Mm. The more he talks about it, the worse the Biden administration looks like, or the weaker they look like in terms of immigration. Another intriguing event is that、uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from the state of Georgia, has been touting the idea of a national divorce for the U.S. since 2021. It basically means splitting the country between red and blue states based on political ideology. She renewed her call amid the standoff between Texas and the U.S. federal government. So, how popular is her idea among American voters today?、Mm. 
So Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, a very unique, uh, perhaps one of the extremists uh, among you know U.S. House Republicans. Uh, she's been touting the idea of national divorce since 2021. She's giving a more momentum uh, ever since you know she's become a close ally of uh, the former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who already left office, um, and he she's also sitting on the House Homeland Security Committee. She's renewing her core her cause now because of the uh, you know the attention that this Texas case has brought uh, but I would say she's only among the few extremists on American political spectrum after all US is built by immig- uh, migrant immigration uh, immigrants and you know it's a tradition in American culture that they takes pride in this um, I think the majority of American voters wants to ring in uh, illegal uh, immigration but certainly they will not abandon you know the idea of immigration. In that sense, it's also, you know, a very sad to see that uh, U.S. Congress is not doing enough on this issue. They are having more and more time on hyping up, you know, the national security threat brought by countries like China, but having little time really to fix the issue that mm-hmm. affect the life of a, a very every American. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Liu Kun, for the thorough explanation on the matter. That's my colleague Liu Kun and our former correspondent in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. This is Road Today. Arab nations, along with the Arab League, have strongly criticized the recent Western decision to suspend funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees. The move, deemed irresponsible, is expected to exacerbate the plight of vulnerable Palestinians. Currently, 10 countries, including the U.S., U.K., and Japan, have halted contributions following Israel's allegations of ERA employees' involvement in a Hamas attack on southern Israel in last October. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has pledged accountability for any UN employee linked to terrorism, urging contributing governments to ensure the vital aid operations in conflict-ridden Gaza continue for 2 million civilians. For more on the topic, joining us on the line is Professor Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Good to be back with you. Professor, for millions of Palestinians in Gaza, the primary UN agency, UNRWA, is simply a lifeline. In light of recent Western suspension of funding for the agency, how do you assess the potential consequences for the already vulnerable Palestinian population? Well, the immediately potential consequences are that people will die. Um, mm-hmm. in, in better times, UNRWA is responsible for education and health uh, and it's, you know, perhaps for not a life and death operation. But in the situation in Gaza at the moment, UNRWA is responsible for feeding and caring for two million people. Uh, there are other groups that attempt to do this as well, but this is the, the primary conduit uh, of of basically keeping people alive. So it's, you know, not a symbolic gesture. It really is playing with human lives. Given the allegations against UNRWA employees in the Hamas attack, how do you rate the concerted actions from countries like the U.S., U.K., and Japan, or what the Arab League chief called a Western campaign against the agency? What broader implications might this have for regional stability? Well, I think a lot of people look at this and and, and see politics being distorted uh, or politics distorting uh, humanitarian um, crisis relief. I mean, 
the allegations against 12 UNRWA employees are really very serious, that they were directly involved in the horrible Hamas attack of October 7th. That, if these allegations have any truth in them, in any case, they need to be investigated and, and we need to find out the truth of what's involved. But the problem with suspending aid at a moment of crisis um, after you know, more than 110 days of conflict in Gaza where we're on the edge of famine and, and major disease outbreak and already there's been tens of thousands of lives lost, including more than 10,000 lives of children. It's just, I think, irresponsible and foolish. So I think a lot of people are going to look at this and lose confidence in Western nations, including mine, Australia, but also the UK, the US, Japan, uh, for so quickly responding to the situation by completely withdrawing funding. They see it as collective punishment. I mean, mm. the allegations are serious and they should be investigated and they are being investigated. Uh, UNRWA employs 30,000 people, uh, more than 15,000 people in Gaza alone. Uh, it's not surprising that there will be problems in such a large number of people in such a, a difficult part of the world. But I think a lot of people are going to say, well, this response from the Israeli government comes just days after the International Court of Justice said there's a basis for going ahead with their court case that South Africa is um, leading about what's happening in Gaza, including the possibility of genocide. So I, I think it's going to destroy confidence in, in, in Western countries and further undermine stability, as well as having an immediate impact on, on humanitarian uh, aid. Then from the perspective of the Arab nations, the Arab League has also labeled the funding suspension now as irresponsible and a collective punishment against the Palestinians. How do you view the geopolitical dynamics behind their collective statement and its impact on the region? Well, the Arab League, of course, like any international group, is imperfect and has lots of baggage itself, but it's really hard to dismiss what they're saying on the on, on the face of it. This does seem to be both irresponsible and a collective punishment against Palestinians, particularly those in Gaza. Uh, it's coming in response to uh, allegations made by a, a, a really extreme right-wing government in Israel. I mean, we just had the case over the last few days where there was a conference in which a third of cabinet members and, and other members of parliament attended uh, calling for um, the voluntary deportation or expulsion of uh, Palestinians from Gaza and, and establishment of Jewish settlements. And that's a pretty extreme position. So you look at the overall context and people say, well, what are these Western nations doing? They don't seem to be fair. It doesn't seem to be a, a measured response. At the UN conducts an investigation into the allegations against the agency's employees, how do you assess the handling of the situation so far by the agency and what outcomes do you anticipate for the agency as a whole? Well, uh, UNRWA has been established for uh, since 1949, so it's seven decades of operations, um, and initially responding to 700,000 Palestinian uh, refugees, now almost 6 million Palestinian refugees. Uh, various governments in Israel have always had a problem with UNRWA, um, this current government particularly so. So it's an ongoing crisis, but it is a lifeline of support. It, it fills a need which no other uh, agency is able to do, and it is a UN agency. So uh, I, I think the UN you know, may have been slow in responding to some issues. Uh, maybe there's criticism, but they have responded. They, they are investigating. They've sacked the people under investigation. Um, I think they're doing what needs to be done. So to, to just cut funding at a time of crisis doesn't seem reasonable.
Professor, the situation in the Gaza Strip and also in the Red Sea continues to intensify, and many experts believe the growing tensions in the region is threatening the November election in the U.S. What's your take? How might this situation in the Middle East influence the upcoming November election? What specific challenges does this present for political candidates, especially President Biden? Well, it, it it couldn't have come at a worse time. President Biden should be in a strong position to be returned to power, but polling suggests that he's actually it's fifty fifty. Donald Trump can come back for a second term, and of course Donald Trump uh, takes extreme views and, and and uses extreme language. So some Americans are attracted to that. It's a it's a voluntary democracy. You don't have to vote. So the number of those who turn out to vote is really important. We've had statements from black churches, and of course, as you would understand from. Uh, Arab and other Middle Eastern communities, Christian and Muslim,、uh, expressing doubt about Biden. I mean, they're hardly going to vote for Trump, but the danger is they may not do their normal work of mobilising, door knocking, and you know, getting the vote out. And so, it, th- this may be the the single factor that, well, well one of a series of factors, but the final straw that breaks the camel's back that、uh, sees not enough people turning out to vote for Biden, and and as a result, we end up with a, a Trump presidency. The current military response against the Houthis,、uh, we have no confidence it's going to work. The Saudis used air, air campaigns against the Houthis for eight years, and it, it failed. They're actually stronger, and there's no signs the current air campaigns、uh, are going to deter the Houthis. So、uh, the Houthis have their own motivations. They say they're supporting the people in Gaza, but of course there's many other things going on. But a ceasefire in Gaza would take the pressure out of the situation. It would be would be better for everyone、uh, on so many levels, and including for those, you know, concerned about American politics this year.、Mm-hmm. Thanks, Professor, for your time and analysis. That's Greg Barden, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. China's annual spring festival travel rush has kicked off with nine billion trips anticipated across the country in 40 days. That's twice the number from the same period last year. Chinese people will be traveling back to their hometowns to celebrate the Chinese Lunar New Year, which begins on February 10 this year. It's estimated that about 80% of the nine billion trips will be self-driving road trips, also a record, with the rest by rail, air, and water. So, for more on spring festival traveling, consumption, and China's economy, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chen Jiahe, chief investment officer at Novenark Technologies. While China's spring festival travel rush has kicked off, and this year nine billion trips is expected, so Jiahe, how do you see it, and why will there be such a record high number of holiday travelers this year? Well, if if you look at the overall trend, that's basically because Chinese people are having, you know, more income compared with their past, so more people choose to travel out with their extra amount of money. You know, this is. Uh, I think this year China's、uh, per capita GDP will pass the threshold of 13,000 USD. So that's quite a, you know, a developed economy if we compare this with the past. Another thing is that Chinese people's tradition has actually been changed a little bit in the past few years due to the development of the, you know, the the, the railway、uh, network and airline、uh, network. These kind of things because it used to be Chinese people just to go back to their homes during the spring festival holiday. But nowadays, you can just go back over、uh, many weekends because it, it only takes you a few hours、uh, to travel by the high-speed railroad for most of the people. 
So they choose to go out and travel during this uh, long holiday that, that is about seven to ten days. So these have been the changes that we have saw in the past few years. Mm. So visit family plus tourism has become another model, right? And Jiahe, during the January the first New Year holiday, we know that the northeast China's Harbin becomes so hot in winter as a tourist destination, and many netizens praise Harbin's tourism boom as a miracle. And social media play quite an important role. So how do you see this phenomenon? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the social media nowadays has actually changed the pattern of the tourism industry in China. That some cities can just become very famous during a season, and the reason is very simple: that because with the new media or the social media, all these kind of things, when someone feels really good about a, a traveling destination like Harbin this time and Zibo, you know, if you remember one to two years ago, Sanya, these cities. Uh, and they will just uh, post their experience on the internet and on their mobile phone, uh, mobile phone apps. When a city like Harbin receives more uh, praising compared with other cities, what will happen is that they will just outnumber the other cities, and more and more people will join in. So this joining in becomes, you know, something that pushes this city to the top of the list very quickly, which will not happen in the in the old uh, media era. So this is something the change has been uh, happening. That more people just go to this place once it's popular this time.、Mm. So how do you see the tourism bureau across the country compete and they explore new ways to attract tourists? How will this help to boost the local economy? Do you think? I think they have done a wonderful work. I mean,、uh, they have done a wonderful work basically in two places. The first one is that they've been doing pretty good to attract the people to their cities. I mean, if you look at the website、uh, and the new media accounts of these、uh, local traveling to-、uh, bureaus, they started doing more visit work than before. You know, previously they might just send a paper, official paper, saying something. But nowadays, what you can see is that they post a lot of interesting stuff on the internet, and people being attracted because of that. And the second thing that they have been doing is that they control the quality of the traveling. If someone, you know, puts up a complaint about something in a city like the, well, actually anything、uh, that they might not feel good in a city, then these messages are being collected by these local bureaus. And an effective work will be to get away these problems that people have been complaining about.、Mm-hmm. So what you have saw is that you know more work has been done by the local bureaus in this type. You can see many small examples that they tackle problems that has been posted by the tourists.、Mm-hmm. So this、uh, you know attracted more tourists to come to these local economies. Mm. And for China's outbound tourism, will there be a surge during the spring festival holiday season? Definitely. I mean, we we have saw the the, the elevation of visa、uh, between China and Singapore, between China and Thailand. All these news has actually came out, and people would be traveling out.、Uh, the reason that the Chinese、uh, traveling、uh, market in the global market is recovering slower compared with the local market is basically because most of what、well, most of the Chinese people when they go out to travel. They don't really speak English, so they have to employ the traveling agency to help them. And for the three long years of the fighting against the COVID, many traveling agencies have actually shifted their business to other areas, and people have jumped、uh, to other posts.、So、they have to re-employ these English speakers, come back to their industry, and these people have to be trained again. 
uh, to get familiar with all these traveling lines. And this really takes time compared with the local traveling. Mm-hmm. If you look at the world, not many countries really speak Chinese. So this is the reason that why this global traveling of Chinese people is much slower compared with the local uh, traveling. Uh, but it's it's actually recovering. We can see this recovering coming in in the next few years. Well, as a lot of traveling will be made at the same time, economists also projected a fresh consumption boom for the holiday season. So what do you expect for the new consumption boom? Well, I think the consumption is something that China can expect the most in the next decade for developing our economy. I mean, if you separate the economy into different uh, categories. You have uh, import and export, uh, you have investment, you have real estate, you have consumption, you have medical service, all these kind of things. Uh, and if you if you look at, at all these different sectors, you can see that the consumption sector is perhaps the one with the strongest potential. Because currently, if you compare China's consumption with its large scale of GDP, um, this percentage is actually pretty low if you look at the global standard. So there will be a large room for the consumption economy to grow in the next decade. And actually, when we are investing, we look for businesses in this area as well. Mm-hmm. And this is the consumption. And the latest figures also shows that uh, China's major industrial firms saw their profits increase for a fifth consecutive month in December. And the profits of industrial enterprises rose by over 16% year on year. So what does this say about China's economic recovery? Well, actually, we have saw this recovery came at the end of the year. So this, this really tells us that the Chinese economy has been uh, recovering pretty well from the uh, pressures it has got in the past few years. Uh, well, if you look at 2023, we've got many problems uh, facing the economy. The global trading environment is not very promising. The real estate market has been slowing down. Also, uh, we, we have... Uh, been having a pretty hard recovery from the COVID uh, back in the first quarter and the second quarter of the year. And still, we've got this shifting uh, upward of the profit. And especially if you look at the GDP data, 5.2% for the whole year. And if you look at the electricity generation, it has been 6% for the whole year. So we have seen all the recovery has been heading towards the very uh, positive territory. And also, China's central bank has announced a series of monetary policy to enhance liquidity. The PBOC will lower the reserve requirement ratio by 0.5 percentage points from February the 5th, and it also cuts the relending and rediscount rates by a quarter of a point. So how will this promote economic growth, and which sector will benefit from it? Well, the PBOC has been doing this in support of the market and actually gives the market pretty much confidence about the government's attitude towards the economy. So what you have seen is that after the PBOC has been doing this, the stock market has been kept on rising for a few days. Uh, and if you talk about the sectors, currently China's financial system is trying to you know, not flood every sector it has got, but try to promote some sectors that can be um, especially good for China's long-term growth. And that would include things like growing finance, you know, environmental protection, uh, consumption, uh, technology, uh, high-end manufacturing, all these kind of things. 
That was Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Newman Arc Technologies. That's all the time we have for this edition of Road Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. I'm Ge Anna. Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye for now. Thank、you